Hello and welcome to So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia from Diochis to Yazdegerd III. I'm Serial and my pronouns are they them. And I'm Umberto and my pronouns are he him. So hello everybody and welcome to episode 26, Antiochus III. I'm not going to tell Serial the nickname. I, until we, it appears uh, in the episode, because it's a bit of a spoiler, but well, okay, okay, listen, listen. You have so, advantage. Uh, so, 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 uh, let's. <laughs> we were talking about this, right? So, the thing is, <laughs> how is the Antiochus right now? Is the last member of this family of the Seleucids of this dynasty yes, has no heirs and is too young to have any heirs that like would be of mature age where he to die or so like that puts him in a very precarious position. His brother just got assassinated because he did terribly at some kind of battle or other. Mm-hmm. Sources are a bit eh about it. And there's this guy, what's his name? Achaeus. Achaeus, who probably most certainly assassinated his brother. Like, like it's pretty clear that he did do that. <laughs> Uh, sketchy. So I'm like, okay, I don't know how Antiochus would pull through with this. Probably he just reigns for a couple years and then, you know, gets assassinated because there's a lot of people who want to get in on being able to rule this empire. Because like like we said, he has no heirs. It's like a weak part of the dynasty regarding, you know, being able to continue. Like, if there's no more family, then anyone technically has a claim to the throne because it's not... I, I'm struggling to explain it, but you know... It's a great moment to swipe in and... Also, Achaeus is his uncle. Exactly, exactly. So it's like, okay, I don't know how he's going to do it. The thing is, though, the thing is, though, this episode, (laughs) per Umberto's estimation, is like a long one. Like three hours or so of recording. So, so... We'll cut that down, don't worry. So, uh, mm, how... (laughs) How, 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 like, is he going to pull through with, like, a Darius III, like, oh, Begoas assassinated the two previous kings, but by the time he gets to be, I'm actually going to kill him first and then actually do a decent job? Or are we just like, oh, he immediately (laughs) dies, and so we are now covering all of the contenders. Since it hasn't been decided who is king yet, we're just going through all of them, and that's why it's a long episode. What is happening how is this a three hour long episode we'll get to find out <laughs> i c- i do we'll not get see to it. find out what It'll do you mean cool. the nickname is spoilers what what do you mean yes the nickname is spoilers you'll find out about like halfway through <laughs> and i'll tell you what it is okay well so there uh Okay, so let's start with a quick recap of the past two episodes because not much happened in the last one So what happened is that the empire is crumbling. It lost Anatolia, it lost a lot of the east. Mesopotamia and Syria were sacked by the Ptolemies. We've lost the port of Antioch containing the graves of the founders. Fun. Everything is sort of on fire. Then Seleucus II died falling off his horse. Seleucus III tried to conquer Anatolia, but was later probably murdered by Achaeus, who is his uncle and important didn't general. didn't do a good job, sadly. Because he did a terrible job, and they decided that it was better to get rid of him. And now Achaeus, who is perhaps a distant cousin, but definitely the uncle of both Seleucus and Antiochus III, is now just one step away from the line of succession, making him king. Also, he is very suspicious because after these soldiers 
murdered Sir Lucas III. He had them all executed before anybody could interrogate them or get anything out of them. Yes, exactly. So very normal behavior for sure. So it is sketchy. And also he's in charge of the army. You know. As an extra thing. <laughs> so let's get into it and figure out what is Antiochus III's destiny. So, let's start with his birth. He was born as the second son of Seleucus II and his wife Laodike in 241. And then when he became 16, he was assigned to govern the eastern satrapies and Babylon in particular, where it looked like he did a reasonably good job. And also his brother Seleucus III confirmed him in this position and everything went well enough until Antiochus became an 18-year-old. When he becomes 18, he receives news. Oh, your brother was poisoned. You're king now. Good luck with everything. Yep. Haha. As it goes. Which, like, you know, to be fair, he hadn't tried to usurpate the throne from his brother. They, they had reached an agreement of like, hey, you're doing a good job in Babylon. So please continue that and we will just be friends throughout. So it's not like yeah, that he was that particularly, was cool. you know, interested in the throne. At least not enough to kill his brother. Yeah. Also, this isn't an especially enviable position to want yeah. to inherit. It's, yeah. There have been better things to have your be your problem. But as you mentioned, we are all concerned about Achaeus, but Achaeus is off in Anatolia with the army. And there are several other people that are closer geographically to the king mm. and are jumping on the opportunity to try and take control. Right. So let's meet the gang of the people who are going to try and manipulate our boy. Ah, here we go. This is what I thought. Okay. What are the contenders? <laughs> so the contenders are, let's do east, west, and then center. So <laughs> starting from the east, we have the brothers called Molon and Alexander, who are respectively satraps of Media and Persia and are in control of the eastern satrapies. So they're controlling the eastern bit of the empire, and they want to make sure that they're favored by the king, or at least get control of the king somehow. Then, further to the west, we already mentioned Achaeus, who is somehow blood-related to the Seleucids, and could potentially become king himself. And finally, in the center, we have an important courtier, who is already a right hand of Seleucus III, who had been his key advisor who is now directly in Babylon and has made himself the de facto regent of the young Antiochus. So these are the people we have. Now, what are their moves? Well, in the West, just in the aftermath of the death of Seleucus III, Achaeus is proclaimed king by his soldiers. Achaeus has a bit of a problem here, because if he accepts this declaration as king, then he has to march east and take the capital and defeat Antiochus to make himself king. But if he doesn't accept the kingship place and Antiochus III just meets with an accident, then he gets the kingdom without having to waste all these resources on a civil war. Right. So basically what Achaeus does is he just goes to the soldiers and says, listen, guys, I'm flattered that you want to make me your king, but I'm going to be a loyal subject of Antiochus III. <laughs> As Very long smart. as it's convenient to me, then maybe I'll reconsider your king option. <laughs> as long as it's easier. We'll just, you know, yeah. let's save money and lives and resources and time. Yeah. So let's see how that goes. But in the meantime, in the east, we have that Molon, 
was the important of these brothers ruling the East, mm-hmm. isn't happy with Hermias having control of Antiochus, and maybe there was a prior rivalry there. So Molon declares war on Hermias for control of King Antiochus. So the East is rebelling actively against the kingdom, which is not ideal, because this has all happened in like a few months since Antiochus took the throne. Yeah. So how do we deal with this? Well, Hermias, who's now in charge, needs to figure out what are we doing. So we're told that Antiochus wanted to go and fight Molon and defeat him and, you know, retake the East. But Hermias knows that if Antiochus dies, then Achaeus is king. Right. And Hermias loses all his power. So he wants to keep Antiochus safe for now. <laughs> Antiochus throughout all of this has no say in anything. He's just there like, am I useful? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's there just waiting around, hoping that he won't get murdered one day. He just sits pretty plans. and waits until the yeah. adults are done talking and <laughs> murdering much. each other. So know. Hermias tells Antiochus, listen, how about you plan a war against the Ptolemies to retake those territories in Syria that we needed? And I'll deal with the situation in the east. You just plan your stuff, okay? Great. Good job. So Hermias sends a few general against the rebelling satrap Molon. And the problem is that the generals he sent, as soon as they see Molon's army, don't even fight. They just retreat. Oh, <laughs> uh, whoops. They see that it's too big. It's like, oh no, oh no, oh no. This is, we're on the wrong side. Help. So that's not great. Hey, guys, we are, someone wants coffee? No? Ba- ba- bagels? <laughs> D- donuts? Okay, yeah. you know. Two sugars? Just popping yeah, to the okay. shops will let us know if you want anything pie. So this allows Molon to just march unimpeded into Mesopotamia and start conquering all its cities. Not only that, he also starts to besiege Babylon. Because when you have a big army, that's what you do. Yeah, he has control of all the armies of the east, which is a lot. <laughs> so that's fun. Molon actually also contacted Achaeus and said, Hey, do you want to get in on this? We can make a two-pronged assault. I'll support your claim. How does that work? Mm-hmm. What do you think Achaeus does? Do you think he risks it or does he go? Yeah, is this more useful than avoiding this civil war altogether? Because opposing now might be well, there's more there's a civil trouble. war anyway. Yeah, opposing now might be more trouble. So I would say yes. He says yes. Actually, no. Achaeus <gasps> is very cautious right now. But, like, dude, they're, like, they're already fighting, <laughs> and you want this guy as your enemy instead of your ally? Yeah, but if Molon takes control of the capital, then he has more of a claim to the kingdom, and Achaeus doesn't get to be king. So he's just going to wait and see who wins, and then come in and attack the weakened oh, rival. Uh, I guess? So that's the plan he's going with. I guess? So, eh. Also, at this point, Molon is just trying to claim to be regent. I see. So maybe Achaeus wants to be full king and not just a regent, because yeah, and he like cleaner. like you said, they would have to divide the empire, right? Like just share it. Yeah, exactly. So in the meantime, Hermias decides, okay, we need friends. <laughs> Let's find some friends somehow. So he marries our young king Antiochus to a woman named Laodike who was both the cousin of Antiochus and the daughter of the king of Pontus, one of these kingdoms in Anatolia, and incidentally just a descendant of one of the six nobles that helped Darius the Great overthrow Bardia. So 
there's a connection mm. there to the Achaemenid right. dynasty yeah. somehow. Well, I mean, if you want to squint, nice. sure. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And also, marrying Antiochus to Laodike implies that, well, he's going to have an heir, so this stops Achaeus from having any smart murder ideas. But after marrying off King Antiochus, Hermias still needs to deal with Molon. So what does he do? He sends a mercenary army off to Babylon to try and deal with him. Because Antiochus is still being kept, good boy, it's okay, you just plan your war against Egypt. Actually, it looks like Antiochus has declared like a small regional war against the Ptolemies to try and retake some of these cities. So Antiochus is occupied, Hermias sends this mercenary off. Now, while Antiochus has started the Fourth Syrian War, mm-hmm. Molon fights this mercenary sent by Hermias and defeats him utterly, conquering all of Mesopotamia, reducing the Seleucid Empire to just Syria. This is the lowest point we've been so far. Everything is almost gone. And not only that, but now that Molon has all of Mesopotamia and the East, he's done pretending that he just wants to be regent, he just declares himself king and says, okay, let's go beat Antiochus's butt and take <laughs> yeah, everything. As you do. So that's not great. And at this point, Antiochus is just kind of done with dealing with the Ptolemies because he says, okay, like, yeah, I'll regain some cities, but I don't want to lose my whole kingdom, Hermias. What have you been doing? I think <laughs> it's time I actually led the army. And so... And Antiochus decides to organize his men, the men he had prepared to invade Syria and he was besieging some cities with. He says, okay, let's bring the royal army to the east, defeat Molon. Hooray. The problem is that since they had started this war in Syria, they hadn't really conquered any cities or had any victories. So the army is just annoyed that they've been called and have to march across the country for nothing. And they also haven't been paid. And the treasury is kind of empty. So they basically stage a mutiny against our King Antiochus when they find out there's no money and they have to go across to Mesopotamia to fight probably a losing battle. Ah yes, we love that moment. Yeah, so everything is kind of in the air, but fortunately, good Hermias, kind Hermias, helpful Hermias, comes up to the army and says, no, 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 don't worry if the king can't pay, I'll pay your salaries. It's okay, I'm doing it out of the goodness of my heart. Right, right. But I want to follow with the army, please. (laughs) And Antiochus can't do anything about it. He's like, well, I guess you're the one paying the soldiers. Sure, come around and puppet me (laughs) over in Mesopotamia. Antiochus is just like, you know what? what Like, I just, I I don't care anymore. (laughs) Um, As long as I don't get murdered like my brother. Yeah. Yeah, let's go. I will probably get murdered at some point. We'll just, you know, see how long we can last. Just let me be in my city (laughs) and, you know, do the thing I was doing. Also, don't ask where Hermias got the money. Definitely not corruption by being the regent. Definitely not that. Ah, I see. No, he just had, you know, bank account. He's been saving. Yeah, He's a self-made millionaire. Just, uh, (laughs) worked really hard from nothing and became this. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) So at this point, Antiochus and his army with Hermias follows to the east to try and face Molon and defeat the eastern rebels. And hooray, hurrah. So we're told that, while naively you would have assumed that Antiochus would go and attack Molon directly, Mm. they decide to do something slightly more clever. 
from which we can presume that Antiochus had some clever advisors helping him out because he's like 18 or 19 at this point. He doesn't have that much military experience. Mm -hmm. As much as you want to read, it's difficult to figure this stuff out. So instead of heading for Babylon, they head around towards the east. So what they do is they basically cut off Molon from his base of support in the eastern satrapies and ensure that his territories are separate into a Mesopotamian part and an eastern part. So they can't reinforce each other. So that's nice. <laughs> and basically after having geographically isolated Molon, Antiochus marches against them and they have a large battle on the river Tigris where Antiochus manages to outnumber the rebels. And surprising... Basically everybody, they win this battle. The rebels are defeated. They manage to Ooh. at least defeat this one bit. They're defeated so badly that Molon, his family, and all of the other leading rebels kill themselves rather than be captured alive. Oh, wow. So, rebellion over, I guess. Nice. That's one way to so do it. one of the triumvirate has been defeated. Good to know. But... Now what do we do with all the people that rebelled, Serial? Do you think it's best to be merciful or be utterly ruthless? Well, okay, so, you know, big fan of Cyrus the Great. We loved how he went about things. <laughs> Good guy. I don't think this is what these people are thinking in a period of, like, such instability <laughs> and nobody knows what's gonna happen and, oh, there's, like, five people trying to be king at the same time. So... Yeah. I think... Wait, but you said the rebels won. No, no, we won against the rebels. Oh, okay. The rebels were defeated, but we need to just figure out, okay, what do we do with yeah. the ones that are left? Well, if I think they're going to get executed. Well, what is done is both things. Okay. Because... Schrodinger's rebels. Yeah. According to official propaganda, Hermias was super vengeful, executing, torturing all the governors of cities that had rebelled or just opened their gates to Molon without fighting, and he destroys anybody who opposes them. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Antiochus, after a while, of course, after the most important rebels have been defeated, just shows up to the scene and says, Oh no, but who has been doing all these terrible nah. things? Oh, Hermias, bad boy, why did you execute all my enemies? No, 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 I'm going to be merciful and a good king. I'm sorry, guys, it's just something that happens, you know. If you rebel next time, I'm going to be merciful, just, you know, my advisors, they're a bit crazy, they might get to you first, so. Oops. That's excellent. I love this. So we get a nice good cop, bad cop thing going on between Hermias and Antiochus. So Antiochus gets all the benefits from the... Massive violence and murder, but he gets to look. But he doesn't endorse and kind it. You and know. respectful. Yeah, no, of course, it just happened without his knowledge. Yeah, it's just so unfortunate that it happened. He would never. Yeah, so sad. So now this rebellion has been dealt with, and Antiochus retakes some of the remaining rebel cities. You know, it's nothing serious, but it just works out in the end. And also, while he's there, while Antiochus is close to Media. He attacks the local ruler of Media Atropatene, which is basically northwest of regular Media. It was founded by a satrap of Darius III, who just became independent. Mm -hmm. But these guys had sided with Molon, and Antiochus manages to obtain their submission. They're now a vassal state of the Seleucid Empire. So, cool. We're sort of regaining the east. Nice. 
it's at this point that Antiochus gets news that his new wife Laodike had given birth to a healthy baby boy. Can you guess the name, Serial? It's either Seleucus, Antiochus, or Alexander, <laughs> maybe. Going, you know, out okay. there. <laughs> yes. What are you visualizing? I'm going to go for Antiochus. Correct. This yes. is Little Prince Antiochus, as we'll call him, because it's easier to remember him that way. So, hooray, baby boy, the dynasty is saved. We have an is heir. It? No, that's not last. how it works. A baby cannot rule. You need to, like, survive for at least 16 more years, my friend. Interesting that you should say that, because Hermias now is a lot more open to Antiochus risking his life, because, don't worry, sire, if I have to be regent for 16 years for your newborn child, then I'll do it. I'll, I'll do this sacrifice. You just go <laughs> risk your life. Be free, my son. So, not ideal. Yeah, no, it's not great. Also, do you know who else would be unhappy about the birth of this child? Uh, the other... Uh, what's his name? The uncle? Uh, uh Achaeus! Yes, because he is now one step lower in the line of succession, which is annoying. So what's he up to? In the meantime, while Antiochus was dealing with Mesopotamia, Achaeus was covering himself with glory, reconquering Anatolia. Officially for Antiochus, but... Practically everybody is now loyal to him. Right. And now that Achaeus hears that he is now two deaths away from becoming king, he decides to accept his soldier's previous offer and proclaims himself king of Anatolia. Just like Hyrax did a while ago. So, I mean, we didn't have Anatolia anyway, but we've sort of lost that army, which is not great. Yeah. So, meh. But it looks like at this point Achaeus isn't really marching on Antioch, because it seems that his soldiers are loyal enough to Antiochus that they're not going to attack him, but they're not so loyal that they're not going to rebel. They're like in this weird halfway zone. Mm. And it is also in this period that Antiochus is getting tired of Hermias constantly meddling and wants to get rid of him. Oh, Antiochus now is like, actually, maybe I will rule, you know? Yeah, maybe I mean, I, I've done reasonably well. Like, I'm know, not all dead I need to do yet. is get rid of my puppet master. <laughs> so, uh, maybe I can do this. I love that it's like, oh, everything's been going great, so I, I guess maybe I am <laughs> an, an awesome ruler. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm really good at this, while, like, he's virtually done nothing, of course. It was everyone else. Yeah. It's like, but, wow, yeah. I'm, I'm so good at my job. I, I guess I don't need all these people anymore. Fires everyone who is doing the job for him. <laughs> He's a young man, he's full of uh, youthful vim and vigor, he'll never die, that sort of thing. But how does he get rid of Hermias when most of the soldiers are being paid by Hermias? Yeah, you don't do that, friend. Well, Antiochus falls sick at one point. Oh. He can't leave his tent, he's very sick, he's bedridden, he can't move, he doesn't let anyone see him. And news comes to Hermias that it might be close to the end. Hmm. And Antiochus calls up Hermias to his bedside to hear his last words. Is he actually sick? Or is this like a... So Hermias goes oh, there. Oh, I am, I am <laughs> sick. I knew it! <laughs> actually, this is great. I I, Antiochus does have some brains. Hardcore. So Hermias goes thinking, ah, finally, he's going to make me regent for his son. I'm going to get to rule for 16 years, unimpeded. Awesome. 
Mm-hmm. So he goes up to Antiochus's bedside. Antiochus is there. He he. I am so sick, Hermias. Come closer. He he. Come closer. He he. And it is only at this point when Hermias realizes that, oh no, all the guards are new. Oh, oh no. I, I, I don't know these guys. So Antiochus snaps his fingers, Hermias is detained and executed on the spot. So Antiochus is free now, hell yeah. Why this like really convoluted way of doing it? Why not just be like, hey, kill this guy. Why, like, the whole, oh, I am sick, call him to my bedside, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I guess you need to separate him from all his guards and that, so this is a good way to get a private audience with the king. And da, da. Then get a private audience with the king? <laughs> what? Yeah, but then he might bring his own guards, you don't know. It's a way to let his guard down. Yeah, maybe he wanted to know, like, okay, let's see, I'm gonna give him one chance. I'm gonna let him see me like I'm dying and see where he goes with it. Like, when he thinks that he's actually, it's kind of like very emotional manipulation of, like, we will see what you do if you think <laughs> I'm leaving. And then, like, if I am satisfied with the outcome, then I might not <laughs> yeah, kill you. Yeah, if you look loyal, then okay. If not, <laughs> I'll destroy you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, awesome. Antiochus is in control. But he has two wars that he needs to deal with. The first one is the Fourth Syrian War that he started but sort of abandoned to try and go to save Babylon. And the second one is Achaeus in Anatolia. So Antiochus decides, okay, the main threat right now are the Ptolemies. If we retake our key cities, that'll be important for us. It'll be a moral support. So let's do this. Let's conquer them. Also, the good news is that the old king Ptolemy III, who had terrified everybody, is now dead. And there's a new Ptolemy IV, who is pretty much Antiochus's age, so he's also young and inexperienced. And also in the Ptolemaic court, they're fighting over regency, so it's a whole mess. So might as well. Yeah, I love that it's the same thing. The two young kings <laughs> battling each it's other mirrored. while everyone else is like, oh, let me get my foot in the door. So one of the things that Antiochus does when he marches back towards Syria is take a lot of gold from Babylon that Molon had left behind. And so he manages to obtain his first victories by basically going up to the Ptolemaic governors of cities in Syria and just offering them a ton of money to just leave. And they accept. So, nice. Great news, we managed to retake pretty much all the formerly Seleucid cities in Syria, including Seleucia and Pieria, which was both the port of Antioch and the seat of the royal tombs. So finally, that insult has been fixed and mm-hmm. we're back in business. Excellent. So, Syria's taken back, but Antiochus is more ambitious. Antiochus has in his mind that he wants to retake all the lands claimed by Seleucus I. So he writes a letter to Ptolemy saying, hey, if you want peace, give us all of Syria and all of Palestine, just like Seleucus I claimed before Ptolemy I took it secretly. So, off we go to war. Yay. Antiochus starts by maybe considering a direct assault on Egypt, but as usual, the Egyptian uh, fleet is way too strong, so... Antiochus decides, okay, let's not do this, this is a bit too much trouble. Let's just go by land, let's take all the fortified cities on the coast of Syria and Palestine and try and defeat Ptolemy that way. Take enough fortified cities, we can just keep the land, it'll be ours. Awesome. But Ptolemy IV isn't idle, 
So he decides that he is going to gather all his forces from Egypt and march up towards Palestine and face Antiochus III. Sure, go for it. So the two kings meet each other outside of the city of Gaza, which is basically the entrance to Egypt proper. And on the one side, we have Antiochus III with his royal army. On the other side, we have Ptolemy IV and his sister wife Arsinoe, both leading a force of 60,000 men at the Battle of Raphia. Can we put that into perspective? This is basically one of the largest battles fought in the Hellenistic times since the Wars of the Successors. Are the sources exaggerating, or is it for once actually true? It seems to be actually true. It looks like Ptolemy IV has 75,000 soldiers on his side, including 73 elephants, while Antiochus III has 68,000 soldiers on his side and 102 elephants. I love that elephants are becoming a thing that we just use now. Yeah, it's fun to fight with elephants. Yeah, somebody is about to use elephants in like five or so years to cross the Alps. You know, no big deal, some guy. Do that rings a bell for some reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And also we're told a uh, a fun detail by Polybius, one of our historians, about the Battle of Raphia, where, as you said, Antiochus hasn't really achieved much. He's just a kid, and Ptolemy is also just a kid. Yep. So both kings, when trying to encourage their armies, they have no deeds of their own to hype them up with. The only thing they can do is just try and hype them up with deeds of their ancestors, saying, oh, my father did this, my grandfather did this. I didn't do anything worth of note, but yeah, fight for me anyway. We're in the same family. You might have known them and everything. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Who knows? But yeah, we finally have this large battle of Raphia, huge battle, really important. And during the battle, we're told that Antiochus led his cavalry personally and broke through the Ptolemaic lines. But because he was young and inexperienced, he just kept chasing after the enemies that were running away and didn't rejoin the battle, which basically allowed Ptolemy to take advantage of the situation and defeat the Seleucid forces. Oh, what a shame. That wasn't great. It's not a huge defeat. I mean, about 15,000 Seleucid soldiers died compared to the couple thousand Ptolemaic ones, which is not ideal. But the army at least isn't destroyed, is the point. So Antiochus manages to withdraw from the battlefield with most of his army, but they have to retreat all the way back to Syria. And in the same time, Ptolemy retakes his cities in Palestine. So... In the end, everybody decides to make peace. Where it's not really a whole defeat for the Seleucids, because Antiochus gets to keep all the cities in Syria and the royal tombs and all that, so it's a pro, it's a bonus, but he doesn't manage to get as much as he wanted everything up to Egypt as he had proclaimed to Ptolemy in this letter. Yeah. So, meh, pros and cons. But now that the Ptolemies have been dealt with, we need to deal with Achaeus. Cousin slash uncle Achaeus is now ruling Anatolia as a king of it independently. And as we mentioned before, his own army didn't really want to attack Antioch directly, just wanted to stay in Anatolia and hold it as a separate kingdom. So, eh, not ideal, but Antiochus wants to at least get rid of this threat to the throne who had killed his brother and retake Anatolia if he can, because... It's been two kings that we've been trying to retake Anatolia. He wants to make it stick now. So in 216, Antiochus takes his army across the Taurus Mountains into the lands of Achaeus after having made a deal with the king of Pergamon. 
who, if you'll remember, was the previous owner of most of Anatolia. We don't really know what the deal was, but it looks like it was mostly, hey, King of Pergamon, maybe just annoy Achaeus while we are in the area so he can't mm. focus all his attention on us. Does that sound good? Good. Okay, great. So we don't get many detailed sources on how the actual war goes, but we know that it continues for a couple of years. And Antiochus manages to fight his way, marching and winning several battles, getting all the way to Achaeus' capital of Sardis, where he puts it under siege with the rebel king indoors. Antiochus manages to quickly break through the main set of city walls, but Achaeus flees to the citadel and holds up there and tries to defend himself and call for help to the Ptolemies. We're told that the Ptolemies had a whole plan to help Achaeus escape, and raise a new army in Syria. Aren't we fighting the Ptolemies? We made a peace with them. Okay. But Achaeus wasn't fighting them, because he's just rebelling mm. anyway, so he doesn't care. Mm. And it looks like the Ptolemies are just trying to make trouble, trying to get Achaeus away from Anatolia to mm-hmm. some loyalists in Syria so he can take the throne, and then Antiochus is the rebel, and blah, 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 blah. It's a whole thing. I see, I see. So, the Ptolemies decide to plan a heist to get Achaeus outside of the city. But, at this time, Antiochus' spies whisper in his ear, Hey, listen, we've heard this plan. We know who the guy that's meant to have Achaeus escape is. Do you want to have a chat with him? Antiochus thinks, okay, let's see what this guy has to say. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that this Ptolemaic agent has flexible loyalties as long as you pay him enough. So Antiochus gives him a big old bag of cash and says, Bring me my cousin Achaeus. You'll be richly rewarded when you do it. Mm. So the rescue plan goes through. Achaeus finds the Ptolemaic agent. He is taken out of the city in the dead of night. He is led to a special part outside the city. And there he meets Antiochus. Oh, sh**. Uh, hi. <laughs> oh no, he's being chained up. Oh no, this isn't going well. Oh crap. Oh dear. Wait, rebellion doesn't pay. Uh, Achaeus. So yeah. Well, now we have a bit of an echo of what happened with Hermias, because, well, you know, Antiochus can't kill Achaeus. He's his cousin and his uncle. He would never do something so vile and cruel. I mean, Antiochus just wants him to live happily ever after, but, oh, oh no, the council got to him first. Oh my what god. What Antiochus do? I, Antiochus is actually <laughs> a bastard. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like... Oh my god, I, yeah, I am, I am here for this. I am so glad that this yeah. is going the way it's going. Oh my god. Yeah, we're told that Antiochus cried in public after seeing what they had done to his poor uncle Achaeus. Poor Antiochus. We he had nothing been so against, distraught. obviously. Never mind that Achaeus was clearly no, interested in the never. throne. Like, never, he never. Was a good he man. wouldn't have done that. So what does the council decide? Well, the council decides that... Achaeus should be horribly, horribly murdered and mutilated. Oh, for oh, damn. What the hell? Like, what? <laughs> this is the <laughs> thing, though. It's not even like, oh, he got executed. I didn't want him to be executed. It was a mistake. They didn't follow my order. Like, I didn't get there in time. I'm so sorry. It was, you know, when someone thinks they have to do something and then you don't get there in time to, like, actually review the order oh whoops what can you do he's dead now but like when it's actually something brutal and then he's like i cannot believe 
you have done this to him. Oh my god. Anyway, eh, what can you do? Yeah, <laughs> happens. Oh well. Don't rebel That's next brutal. time, kids. This is what happens to traitors. Oh my god. So poor poor Achaeus has all his limbs cut off <gasps> before being decapitated, and then all the remains are crucified outside the city of Sardis to remind anybody what happens to rebels and to people who assume regal authority without rights. Uh-huh. Okay. I didn't know. <laughs> Teehee, but I am a good king, though. Just, you know. Yes. Teehee, I didn't mean to. I'm the good guy. Why is he so unhinged? What the? <laughs> he just had, like, thirst for murder. Maybe he had a hard time growing up. He, he... Oh, my God. I can't <laughs> believe that this is what he wanted to do all along, and then once he finally let go, this this cruelty happened. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> There's God. a lot. It's like Chaos just trying to play it safe and like he should have just done the thing. Yeah, he should have just he remained have just a done general the thing. and said, nope, yeah. nope, I'm good. <laughs> Don't worry. I, I retook Anatolia for you. I'm happy with being here. Either Thanks. gotten rid of Antiochus like right away or just not mm. try to, you know, go for the throne anymore. He should have been quicker on the murder before yeah. he himself yep. got murdered. Yeah, yeah, he was too cautious and too like, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll do it in my own way. I'll, do, yeah. I'll be careful. Yeah, maybe with if it. he sided with Molon in the first yes. place when it was offered, he could have made it, but. Eh. Did you now see you're his horribly army? mutilated and crucified. Dude, come on. Yeah. But great news! The Empire's back together, Serial! It's finally together again. Hooray! Uh, is it? For how long? It's mostly together. <laughs> Okay. Because Antiochus now decides that, well, if you remember, the East had sort of been splintering and breaking apart with the Parthians and the Bactrians and independent satraps. Antiochus decides he wants it back. Right. So. So. He starts by reusing his carrot and stick policy, where basically he looks at all of the soldiers of Achaeus and says, hey, guys, look at me. I'm the good king, right? Clearly. You saw what my council did, but that's my council, you know. Sometimes they go a bit crazy. Do you want to join my army and never betray me? Or do you <laughs> want to see what the alternative is? And everybody's like, nope, nope, sir. Yes, yes, please, we're joining, whatever. Yep, yep, here we go. Yes, thank you. So, hooray, we have a bigger army now. And Antiochus plans a large campaign to the east. He begins his campaign by invading a land that the Seleucids never really owned, the Kingdom of Armenia which had been paying tribute to the Seleucids on and off, depending on if they felt like it. Yeah, yeah. If it's convenient. Yeah. But Antiochus marches in there and manages to defeat their king Xerxes, who accepts to become a vassal to Antiochus and marry his sister. Also, a decade later, just because it happens, Xerxes is going to die without an heir, and Antiochus will directly annex the kingdom. Oh. So, you know. Nice. Convenient. So then Antiochus began to prepare his vast army for his Anabasis, or Great Eastern Expedition, Great Return, where he prepared a large amount of cavalry to counter the Parthian nomads and the Bactrians with their heavy cavalry up in the mountains, and he gathered a vast supply chain so all his men would not raid the countryside of the lands they're trying to retake so that the local population so there's something actually worth like taking, them and not you know. and welcome them, yeah. And then he gathered an immense amount of money to pay all of this with. Sometimes raiding some temples, 
Less than ideal, but eh. You need to get the money from somewhere. Yeah. So we have an army of about 35,000 soldiers with 6,000 cavalry and about 15,000 members of the phalanx and miscellaneous others. Also, in anticipation of what's going to happen, Antiochus makes his 11-year-old son, Prince Antiochus, co-ruler of the empire. He is co-king. Oh. And he leaves him back in Antioch. Already at 11. Damn. Yeah. I mean, this has a couple of advantages because, A, the succession is nice and clean and sorted. Yes, yes. This is what you should do. I'm not complaining. For once, someone is being logical. Also, the good thing is that he's 11, so he's not going to exactly rebel against his father and try to take the throne. He is too young for that. And the third interesting thing is that now Antiochus can sign all his peace treaties in his name and the name of his heir. Right. So the peace treaty will continue having effect even if he dies because, well, his heir also signed it. So it's still valid. So awesome. In 210, Antiochus begins his eastern campaign from which he will gain his nickname. Can you guess what it is, Serial? No, I... The Conqueror? I... Even better than that. After this eastern campaign, Antiochus will be called Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great. Ah, oh, yes! I am here for this. <laughs> I am so excited. I don't know how he pulled it off, but he did. Let's go, Antiochus, my boy. being a scared 18-year-old to a guy who destroyed all his enemies and now he's going to retake the empire. I, why is there not... Is there a movie about this? Because I love there this. There isn't, because... Nobody cares, and I think it's even better when you keep in mind how it ends, but we'll get to that. Oh, oh come on! Ah, uh, okay, I... <laughs> yes, I like him, I'm rooting for him. <laughs> so, wonderful. Antiochus goes, starts attacking the east. He first goes against the Parthians. The Parthians are these nomadic people that had settled in the land of Parthia, just past the mountains from the steppe, and they begin expanding into Media and basically the southern coast of the Caspian Sea, but Antiochus decides that he is just going to systematically take all their territories and just chase them back into the steppe. Mm. The Parthians try to resist him by filling in all the wells along the way to try and stop his soldiers from getting water Water. and sustenance. Mm. Yeah, because we forget that, like, that's a very valid way of, like, doing warfare, because people still need to live, right? They need food and they need water and they need a way to take care of themselves, so... But if you remember, Antiochus prepared an amazing supply line, so he doesn't care. He wasn't going to take from the land anyway. He was just going to take it from home. Uh, So, very cool. So Antiochus continues marching, defeats the Parthians, and pushes them back into the steppe. Where, as you remember, fighting in the steppe against steppe peoples is dangerous. So Antiochus starts to be clever about this. Yeah, because otherwise it's not going to last long. Yeah, basically. So he decides to, first of all, use his light infantry to take control of all the hills in the area to ensure that no ambushes could happen. And then he besieges a couple of the royal cities that the Parthians had been building up for their new kingdom, and he captures them. Hmm. So in the end, we don't have many more sources because unfortunately, our historian Justin only summarizes what a better historian wrote. And he just says... Yep, he went east and won the end. Oh no. Which is infuriating. I assume we do not have the books of this other historian. No, we don't. We yeah. just have the summary, which Here we is go. sad. Yep. So, sorry, Pompeius Trogus. You probably were cool. 
But anyway, the Seleucids win. Antiochus is victorious in Parthia, and he basically chops off most of the Parthian lands and allows them to stay in a tiny strip of land at the edge of the empire to protect it from nomads in his name. So they're now his vassal, and they're just there as a border protection. So, nice. At this point, then, Antiochus marches further east against the Bactrians, who are the first to rebel. They had this large Iranian-Greek mixture kingdom that was going on. And, yeah, unfortunately, we don't really have much detail here, again, because of the summaries. But we know that there were two battles across a river, and both times Antiochus managed to win. But during one of these times, Antiochus's horse was killed under him and he was injured. Oh, no. But he apparently managed to fight his way out of that situation and get back into something ordered and in control. At this point, having won these battles, Antiochus decided to besiege all the Bactrian cities and try and retake this territory. But if you remember, when Alexander the Great passed by, before all the little Antiochs and Alexandrias and Seleucias were built, mm -hmm. before all those fortifications were there, Alexander the Great himself took three years to take Bactria. Yeah. So Antiochus doesn't have time for this. <laughs> Antiochus has just heard that Ptolemy IV is dead, and now there's a six-year-old Ptolemy V ruling in Egypt. Ooh. And he really wants that opportunity. Let's go back to Egypt! Yes. So he decides to talk with the king of Bactria and says, Hey, listen, I'm going to let you keep the throne. How does that sound? You give me all your elephants for my campaign in Egypt. And in exchange, you're my vassal and you defend my lands from the nomads, as you are already doing. Does that sound good? King Bactria says, Yes, okay, signs a piece of paper. Hooray, we're at peace with Bactria. But Antiochus, yes, he could go directly to Egypt now, but he has a tempting detour nearby. Because where did Alexander go after taking Bactria? Well, India, of course. Ah, of course, yeah. How am I not... It's clearly. <laughs> and Antiochus really wants to have on his resume that he's the first Hellenistic king since Alexander the Great to march into India, because that would be mm. cool. I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah. So he looks at the situation in India, and it turns out that the Maurya Empire that we were friends with all that time ago mm -hmm. has been undergoing a similar process to the Seleucid Empire before our boy Antiochus the Great, ah. because it's been slowly oh, well. crumbling away, losing its edges, collapsing. And among one of these regions are the lands that Seleucus I had given to Chandragupta Maurya. So Antiochus just basically marches through, gets oaths of fealty from the local rulers, and now they're his vassals, so India acquired. Wonderful. And... Then Antiochus decides to take the route back. So on the way here, he went through the north of the empire. Now he's going through the south of the empire. He's basically mirroring Alexander's return, although without the mass casualties of crossing the Gadrosian Desert, this time actually being properly supplied and not having a mutinous army. Hmm. So Antiochus manages to return through the south of Iran. He reconquers all this land. He also passes through Persia, the first ruler, maybe since either Alexander the Great or Seleucus I, so it's been a while. But he passes through Persia, reasserts royal authority in the area, and nice, he ensures that all the empire is his and it's under control. He also manages to finish up his journey by sea, traveling by ship, receiving fealty from all the coastal settlements of the northern coast of Arabia that are in contact with the Persian Gulf. 
So that is his. Awesome. And at the end of this expedition, when he returns to Babylon, he is proclaimed Megas Basileus, which is Great King, which is essentially the Greek version of King of Kings, because, right. well, A, he's restored the empire, and B, he's better than everybody else who calls himself a king because he rules over kings now. So know your place, Ptolemy. He's better than everyone. He's yep. the best. This gives us a bit of a chance to talk about how he is ruling and what is he doing, because... The interesting thing about his restoration is that it's mostly centered on him as the king. Because unlike the Ptolemaic kingdom, the Seleucid Empire is really vast and varied culturally. So you can't just have one culture where everybody agrees on what a king should do and what they are. You have many different cultures that you all need to deal with somehow. So Antiochus wants to prepare himself to be a strong king and puts up a series of structures in order to make sure that he and his successors will be perceived that way. Right. Well, this is what comes with having a big empire. You have lots yeah. of cultures and to lots deal of with all people. these situations. Yeah. So first of all, he starts with having a very loyal army that knows him and loves him. Good start. Mainly made up of Greeks and Macedonians with the different cultures of the empire having their own specialized forces. Like there's specialized heavy cavalry from Iran. There's specialized slingers from Anatolia, mm. all that sort of thing. I see. So he makes sure to use what everybody is best at. Then he decides to try and integrate the local ethnicities more with the Macedonian ruling class. For example, in Babylon, he decides to include the local nobility in the administration of the kingdom, giving them more agency over how they're governed. Okay. So that's nice. Everybody's getting a bit more of a hand in how the empire can be controlled. Because, you know, if you're the one letting them self-rule to a certain extent then they're going to be happy to have you as a king and not somebody else who's going to control them more strongly. So he does that. And then he has a whole bunch of people called the king's friends, which were sort of like what the Diadochi were to Alexander, what all the successors were, his companions. Mm. Oh, yeah. Were basically his envoys, and they're the ones who exercised his will across the empire and made sure that Antiochus's control was actually real and his orders were being implemented. So this would all work quite well. It takes a bit of management from the king, so you need to have somebody who is capable, like our Antiochus is. But if you can hold all this together, then the empire is solid and good. But hey, surprise, we have someone who is capable, so... Finally. I am so happy about this. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. And also, for the first time since Darius the Great, Antiochus decides to reorganize how the regions are governed. Because under Darius, the satrapies had separate military and political powers, which were relatively large and they weren't meant to rebel. Yeah. But Antiochus needs something more flexible than this. So he decides to have a series of smaller groups than satrapies, smaller governorships, where there's only one person who holds all the military and political powers. But the territory is small enough that rebelling wouldn't really make sense. Mm Mm-hmm. But the advantage here is that the smaller regions can respond a lot quicker to any threats and make sure that any incursions or rebellions can be dealt with quickly and efficiently by the local administration. Right. But off to Egypt. Syrian war number five. Oh, here we go. So we start with, at first, declaring war against the Ptolemies. And Antiochus's governor of Anatolia manages to bite off all the little coastal cities that the Ptolemies had. 
because the Ptolemies are now too busy fighting over who should control the six-year-old king Ptolemy V, and they can't really do anything. Mm -hmm. And at this point in 202, 18 years after the last Syrian war, Antiochus marches against Palestine with his army covered in glory from the Eastern Expedition. He's now calling himself Antiochus the Great, the Great King right. Antiochus the Great. He is ready to kick some butts. So he manages to quickly march down Palestine. He takes Damascus. He captures the city of Gaza, blocking off all Ptolemaic access to the region. Before they can even react, he's taken everything. Oh, heck. Then the Ptolemaic governor of Palestine sees the situation and surrenders all the remaining cities in Palestine to Antiochus. So all of this right. is yeah. great. At the same time, the regent in Alexandria is overthrown due to this failure, and there's a new regent and more chaos in the Ptolemaic Empire. So everything is slightly collapsing, because we also have that, at the same time, the Kingdom of Macedon has decided to take all the Ptolemaic cities that were in their region. Right. So the Ptolemies are now basically reduced to Egypt and Cyprus. They've lost pretty much yeah. everything else. And their fleet is floundering without any control. <laughs> Losers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we'll see who laughs last. But then the next year, after the Egyptians have decided who the new regent is, hmm. that regent sends an army into Palestine to try and fight Antiochus. But Antiochus was ready. He's had 20 years of military experience, 20 years of victories. He's learned from his past mistakes. And he faces the Ptolemies in battle at Panion with his own son, Prince Antiochus, in command of his new heavy cavalry that he's gained from Iran. And during the battle, there is a very similar situation to the Fourth Syrian War, where the young Prince Antiochus charges with his cavalry men to punch through the Ptolemaic lines. This time Antiochus is ready, and he orders his son to wheel around and attack the Ptolemies from the back, crushing the Ptolemaic, uh, finally. leaving Egypt basically undefended. He learned, you know, Yes. learned from his mistakes. We love to see it. So that's very nice. Also, Serial, just so you know, we finally made it. It's been 500 years since Diakis. Oh. We've oh. been going for 500 years. Oh, heck. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the world has changed since that time when Assyria was around, but right. we're still here. I'm going to have to re-listen to the first episodes and be like, where did we come from? <laughs> Honestly, I'm going to have to re-listen to this one because it's so much information and I am like, now that we're here, I still cannot see how we got here <laughs> from like where we started. <laughs> it was a lot of fighting to get this far. We'll have a recap during the ranking. It'll be cool. Oh, good, good. But at this point, Antiochus has a decision. He has two things. He can either finish taking away every remaining part of the Ptolemaic Empire and just leave them with Egypt and Cyprus, make sure that everything else is firmly in his hands. Do all this while basically removing all the ports from the Ptolemies and capturing their fleets where they are, so neutering their naval capabilities. Or he can march into Egypt and try and take it all. What do you think he does? Let's take it all, baby! We want everything! We're the great! <laughs> I don't know. No, he is cautious. Yeah, it, it might be too, you know, <laughs> out there. I feel like he's gotten this far because he's smart enough to make the right decision. So Yeah, so he basically has something to look at because he notices that in Egypt, there are a couple of native rebellions of actual Egyptians against the Greek Macedonians mm -hmm. trying to take pack control. 
So Antiochus reasons that if he has to try and take Egypt, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be really difficult. First, he needs to deal with defeating Ptolemy. Then he needs to deal with defeating all the native population. And then he needs to hold all this land. That's going to be a mess. He reasons that it's better to just ensure that the Ptolemies are never a threat again. Mm -hmm. Just destroy all their capabilities of ever retaliating. But then you can just keep them there as a pet. You know, you don't really need to destroy them. They're basically done anyway, so might as well just sit around. Is this gonna come bite him in the butt? Is this underestimating what the Ptolemies could do? Well, yeah, you'll have to see what happens. <sighs> Every time I'm like, hey, how about, and you're like, well, just stick around to find out. I mean, like, I know. Spoilers. Just... <laughs> <sighs> you'll Patience see. Patience is not my strong suit. <laughs> also, Antiochus reasons that if he annihilates another successor kingdom just because he can, then that's not great for his own legitimacy because it means that anybody can just erase a successor kingdom. You don't need to be a Ptolemy to rule Egypt. You don't need to be a Seleucid to rule the empire. Yeah. You can just be some guy. And yeah, so you don't want that. It's also more stable if you just say, okay, you're the Ptolemies. You can keep it there. I'll keep you as my pet. Not mm -hmm. exactly vassal kingdom, a buffer state. And then we'll not worry about this. So, okay, off we go to Anatolia. So Antiochus marches over to Anatolia to try and take the Ptolemaic cities there. And it's at this point that there are some problems that arise. Oh. So, remember Pergamon's serial? Yes. The little kingdom that took most of Anatolia 20 years ago and was now basically a Seleucid ally? Right. Yeah, them. So during Antiochus's campaigns into Anatolia, it seems that he accidentally marches into their territory. Accidentally, you say? So he doesn't conquer anything, he just goes through their territory on the side. Just, uh, whoops, is a silly whoopsie. Just, oh, uh, just, I need to get yeah. through here. Oh, excuse me, just uh, yeah. pass yeah. him by. Looks like it was an accident. Maybe they had different maps. Maybe there was a ah. disputed region he was going through because he thought it was his and they thought it was theirs. Whatever it is, the Pergamene are not happy. Yeah. So they decide yeah. to send an angry letter. As you do. And... Who do you think they send the angry letter to? Ptolemy? <laughs> no, obviously to Antiochus. Not really. They? No? They decide to entirely bypass Antiochus, and they oh, send it to... What? Who? To someone else, basically. Um, let me see if I can pronounce this correctly. Who else is important right now? They send it like, to a... Uh, it, it seems to be a people from uh, the far west. They're called Romans. Oh! Romans. Okay, the Romans. <laughs> I see. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what do the Romans have to do with all this now? Are they like what are Not what is much. happening in Rome? Are they big well, like are we in Republic times? What are we doing? So let's follow the letter. The letter says, Dear Senate and people of Rome, can you help us against Antiochus? He's kind of being mean to us. Letter travels, it travels to the West. Ah, Roger's back in business. Exactly. The best messenger ever is ready. So the letter passes through Macedon, and we find that Macedon's at war with Rome. Huh, I oh. wonder why. Roger stops at a bar, asks somebody, what's going on with this war against Macedon? Turns out, Macedon helped Carthage against Rome in the Second Punic oh, War. Oh, this is what we're Rome's doing. And Rome's here okay. for revenge. Then Roger travels across the Mediterranean and finds, oh, those are a lot of burning Carthaginian ships. Oh, oh, they've surrendered. Oh, they've lost the Second Punic War. Rome is now hegemon of the Western Mediterranean. I see. Uh, I am still... Listen, I have 
my opinions on the Punic Wars, <laughs> for anyone who cares, which is nobody, it's very unfair. Carthage should have won. Fight yeah. me on this. It is very similar to the space race in my mind, in the sense that one of them <laughs> did all the work to like properly actually do the advancements and the progress and then by some freaking miracle <laughs> the other won the last battle and was like oh whoops okay well i guess that's done now it's decided yep. not fair uh, i'm sorry yeah hannibal well i say hannibal we're going to meet him later on stay tuned <gasps> yeah. Because Hannibal is going to be in Carthage, but the Romans threaten to attack Carthage if they don't exile Hannibal, and he has to be uh, exiled. I see. Hannibal's cool, though. But, yes, Rome is now in charge of the Western Mediterranean, and they've also taken some Greek cities in Greece under their protection against Macedon, mm -hmm. who was trying to rule this area. Okay. But the letter arrives to Rome. It's read out to the Senate, dear Senate and people of Rome. Antiochus is being mean to us, can you help? <laughs> and the Romans are busy with Macedon and they don't want to deal with this right now. Understandably so. So they send a letter back to Pergamon and say, hey, Antiochus is a friend of Rome, we're not going to be sending you an army. Deal with it. Is Antiochus a friend of Rome? When did that happen? Apparently the Senate decided it now. <laughs> oh, I see. We're deciding that we're friends. probably doesn't care. And yes. we're not going to attack him. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, Antiochus is bothering us again. <laughs> I'm not touching them, I promise. Mom! <laughs> Guys, just figure it out on your own, please. I have things to do. We've had hundreds of thousands of our men die during the Punic Wars. We're, we're tired, guys, please. <laughs> but at the same time, while all this is happening, Antiochus rubs another Roman ally the wrong way. Ah, fun. Because while heading west with his navy throughout Anatolia, he receives a delegation from the island of Rhodes, which is an ally of the Romans. And the Rhodians ask him to stop his advance and stay in his lane, not to go further west than the island. This led to some pretty tense negotiations where maybe threats were waved around by both sides, which is never a thing to be calm about. Mm -hmm. But in the end, we managed to have a deal because... In exchange for passage, Rhodes could have three of the newly captured Ptolemaic cities that Antiochus had taken. They could just keep those. It's fine. We don't care that much. And Antiochus could just take everything else, and it's fine. Also, there is news from the West that the Romans have managed to defeat Macedon and huh. cut it down to size. And the advantage of this is that as a term of the peace, the Macedonians were forced to abandon all the Ptolemaic cities they'd taken in the past years. And so Antiochus is just free to jump on these cities and take them for himself. <laughs> Would you look at that? So great. But now all of Asia is pacified. Everything is peace. Everything is under Antiochus's control. I love that it's called pacifying. Like, sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm, yeah. I'm sure. It's pacified. It has been yeah. made to be peace. We made a desert and we've called it peace. Shut up. <laughs> Indeed. So now that Antiochus has arrived on the coast of the Aegean, he thinks, well, I've already been the first man since Alexander to reach India. How about I become the first Seleucid king to invade Europe since Seleucus I? That would look good, wouldn't it? Let's do so it. So are we attacking the Romans who were just claiming that we're friends? 
you know? I mean, they were claiming we were friends. We don't know them. (laughs) (laughs) They're just some random tribe of barbarians from Italy. We've never heard of these people. Who cares? So Antiochus decides to cross over into Europe and begin taking control of Thrace from the local Thracian people who are basically considered barbarians. They're not in anybody's regard or sphere of influence. I see. Lucky them. So Antiochus manages to go over and recapture the place where Seleucus I was murdered. So he gets further than his ancestor. Mm-hmm. And he also refounded the old capital of Lysimachus, remember one of the successors that controlled Thrace, the city called Lysimachia, which he's going to use as his base of operations in Europe. Good job. But as you said, Rome isn't going to just sit back and watch this happen. They could. Yeah, but they're Rome. <laughs> you know I know, I'm just, like. you know, I'm, it's, it's called wishful thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So while Antiochus consolidates his lands in Thrace, ensures that he has a nice, safe base of operations for, you know, maybe taking over Macedon. Who knows? They've been defeated by the Romans. That could be fun hmm. to do. Uh, yes, fun. The main descriptor of war. But the Romans aren't happy, so they decide, hey, listen, Antiochus, we're going to send an envoy of the Senate to meet you in Lysimachia. We can talk about who gets to own what. Okay, good. We can see that you're, like, going in, in the same, like, rough direction that we are going. And so, like, we wouldn't want to, like, step on any toes. Yeah, it would be a shame if somebody had to end up stabbed in the neck. So let's not do that. Antiochus is like, wanna bet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Antiochus, have you read my name tag? It says Antiochus the Great. Guys, have you seen what I've done? I have the largest empire in the world. Don't mess with me. Again, I wouldn't want my council to get to you before I did. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> just... <laughs> you know, my council is really messed up. I'm nice, but my council, oof. You wouldn't want to yeah. see them on a bad day. Not even on a good day, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to use that, like, to justify <laughs> when I'm annoyed at people. If you don't shut up right now, I will have to send you to see the council. You don't want to do that. Trust me. <laughs> but we have this nice meeting, first formal meeting between Antiochus and the Roman ambassadors, where basically the decision is saying, okay, let's do this. Rome can take control over Greece. They can do whatever they want in Greece. That's fine. Antiochus will have control over all of Asia and this bit of Thrace that he's occupied now. There are some cities that are a bit of a gray area where they can't really agree who owns them or who doesn't. Like Pergamon, mm. it's not owned by the Seleucids and the Romans kind of promised that they would help them out. And also Rhodes is sort of in Asia, but it's a Roman ally. So it's a bit of a gray area, but they decide we'll deal with it when we have to come to it. Mm. And it's really funny in the sources how both sides are accusing the other side of being imperialist. They're saying, oh, why right. are you conquering people that don't want you there? Like, oh, no, but it looks a lot like what you guys are doing. No, but it's fine when we do it because we're civilizing them. No, but we're civilizing them, actually. Oh, my God. And it's, it's a whole thing. This has been going on for forever. <laughs> yeah. It's the same old thing. And also Appian claims that the original Roman request was for Antiochus to abandon all of his conquests that he's ever made in his life and return to the original lands and Antiochus replies that listen I'm not telling the Romans how to act in Italy 
How about you don't say anything about what happens in Asia? Cool, cool. Great. Bye. I mean, fair enough. Very bold of them yeah. to be like, hey, how about you just, like, lose all your empire? <laughs> yeah, how about you lose all your life's work? I'm sure you didn't yeah. care much about it, did you? Yeah. I love that they're like, oh, you're being imperialist. These people don't want you there. Like, nobody actually asks the people who are getting conquered, yeah. you know? Because this like, is not about up. them. Apparently. You're not part of this negotiation. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so this is settled. Great job. <laughs> is it? It's settled enough that we can just go and do our We're not fighting things. anymore, I promise. Yeah. So Antiochus heads over to Antioch. He sails there because he wants to finish up some negotiations with Ptolemy V to, like, formally end the Fifth Syrian War. It was already done for a few Please. years, but they just need to sign the piece of paper. Mm. And so they have a nice treaty of peace where they recognize all of Antiochus's conquests. And also, there is a marriage alliance... Oh. As there Where Antiochus's daughter, Cleopatra, marries Ptolemy huh? V. And oh. this is the first Cleopatra in Egypt. This hey. is where all the other ones get their names from. So this is Cleopatra Syra, because she's from Syria. Oh, interesting. Cool. Original name. So, we like it. Yay! Does Cleopatra mean anything? As in, does the name have Cleopatra a means the honor of the father. I see. Oh, yeah. Honor, Patra, honor to the Patra, father, yeah. father's honor, that sort of thing. And Cleos, like Heracles, is the honor of Hera. Ah, ah, I see. Ah, Interesting. Yes. Mm. Etymology is fun. I do like it. I get a kick out of it. So, okay, peace with the Ptolemies at last. Antiochus can concentrate on his pet European project. (laughs) Yeah, this little side quest, you know. Yeah. So he marches into Thrace with about 30,000 men which corresponds to about three legions compared to the two legions that the Romans have in Greece. Huh. You know, just to make a point. And there Antiochus consolidates his gains and appoints his second son. Can you guess what his second son is called? Seleucus. Correct. Yes. Seleucus is appointed as governor of Thrace and viceroy of the king there. Love this game. But Antiochus doesn't really want a conflict with Rome. So he just keeps writing to Rome saying, hey, I'm marching here to attack these tribal people on my border. Hope <laughs> that's like cool, you guys. Just like sends them constant passive-aggressive messages of like, yeah. guys, this is just, I'm just going here, okay? Is that okay? Yes, okay. Just letting you know. This yeah, if you're going to be crybabies about it, I won't. But, you know, all right. <laughs> and the Romans are always fine, I guess. But yeah, so while Antiochus consolidates these lands, there's a sort of cold war developing between Rome and the Seleucid Empire, because Rome controls the western Mediterranean, the Seleucids control the east. And they're sort of arguing over small Greek city-states that side with one side or the other and and try to do what they can to survive. So, for example, among these, Antiochus has some uh, friendly relations with the city of Athens, because... Mm -hmm. Uh, the capital Antioch was founded by a large amount of uh, Athenian colonists when Seleucus hmm. I invited them there. So, you right. know, there's a lot of back and forth political, you know, bribing the council of one city to go on your side and going with another and blah, 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 blah. It's a whole mess. That's when, in 195, Antiochus gets an uncomfortable but convenient guest. You see, the city of Carthage has exiled its proudest ah. son, Hannibal. And Hannibal now joins Antiochus's court. So 
the Romans aren't really happy. They tell Antiochus to maybe hand over Hannibal, but Antiochus says, he's in my court. What are you going to do? I'm going to keep him. Thank you very much. He's fun. I actually like his presence. We are friends now. Yeah. And also, it looks like Hannibal here proposed a plan to defeat Rome. No. Oh. Where he said, how about... You should know. You sponsor a coup in Carthage and make me the leader. And then together we invade Italy and crush them once and for all. That would have been fun. But I don't think this happened, so what? Yeah, because Antiochus... Well, Antiochus is Antiochus the Great. He is controlling yeah. the largest empire in the world. He has reconquered it single-handedly, basically. Yeah. Very and impressive. now this guy who lost a war with Rome is trying to tell him how to run his empire? Uh, Come on. Fair enough, but also Hannibal lost because they stopped sponsored him. Listen, we've seen many projects go to sh** because people stopped giving money. That's just, you know. Have you watched Evangelion? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um. Yeah, but essentially, if he wasn't able to convince his own people... To sponsor him to defeat Rome. How is this coup going to work, Hannibal? Are they uh, going to help you this Hannibal. time now that you've failed? I just... Come on. I like him, okay? He is very brilliant and it's not fair. Yeah. Uh, he has no blame. Antiochus's he never point. did anything wrong in his life, okay? <laughs> the poor boy. <laughs> yeah. And at this point, we have some family issues. Because... On the one hand, Antiochus has his son, Prince Antiochus, marry Laodike, who is the daughter uh, of Antiochus right. III and sister yes. of Prince Antiochus. Yes. Well. Why was this done? Because we haven't had sister marriage among the Seleucids yet? It could be either because, as a great king, Antiochus couldn't really give his children to anyone else. It would have been demeaning. It would have been like just giving them to the baker. Right. To, to another king. If when you are like the very top of the top, then like who are you considering yeah. like on your the level? only fitting spouse is your brother. Yeah. Which ew, but I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the okay. But alternatively, it could have also been, you know, since Antiochus grew up in a period of difficulty with the succession and usurpers and all that, if he marries his daughter off to an important noble in the empire then that's just a usurpation waiting to happen. So the best way to keep everybody safe is just marry in the family. But they don't get to stay married long. Ah. Because during this period, we're told that Antiochus's wife and Prince Antiochus died of natural causes in Antioch. No, what? Oh, yes. heck. Uh, uh, so that's unfortunate. Danger. Did you not depressing. have any other sons? He did, he had Seleucus, who was... Okay, okay, good, good, good. Yeah, it's fine. But some suggest poison, it's unclear who would have poisoned them. They might have just gotten sick because of malaria or mm. whatever. Yeah. It, it happens. It felt a bit out of the blue, like, I, Plagues I don't think go through a city. it's particularly strategically important. I mean, it's not good, but, like... Yeah, it's an unfortunate <laughs> thing that happened in... Uh, yeah. Well. So, as you said, this forces Antiochus to make his second son, Seleucus, now co-king, because, okay... Right. He is my heir now. This is what we're doing. But the problem here is that this sort of makes Antiochus's previous trick of signing peace treaties with his name and that of his oh, son. Yeah. It's no longer valid because the son's dead. So isn't there well, a way? Like, it's as if he couldn't didn't. he had just been like, 
oh, in my name and my heir. You know, uh, like I guess it was shall too succeed. vague. I guess you need to have a nice big formal signature saying Antiochus, son of Antiochus, like, king of kings. But it's a contract. Life. Just put it in the clauses. <laughs> you know? Uh, I guess they weren't that legally refined in their peace treaties. So that's not great. That's a problem. I would even do like to whoever succeeds because like I don't like... To whom it may concern. <laughs> You are, like, in the sense of, like, of course I don't want to lose the empire or to, like, give it to a different family. But in the case that were to happen, if I actually cared about the empire not breaking apart and not, like, you know, at least do it so that it stays together. I don't know, but I, I guess we are assuming that they care for the stability of, like, the people living in the empire, which is not the case, clearly. I mean, they probably also do care. I mean, because if the people are stable, they are stable too, but... Yeah, you know, but, they probably yeah. just assume that you need to sign it in the name of a king. You can't just go to the post office and ask an ID for my future son I'll have at some point. Just fill it in, I'll fill in the blanks. <laughs> yeah, I guess. That would be a bit weird. But what happens now is some damn fool thing in the Balkans causing a world war. Oh, damn. Because in 192 in Greece... This Exactly what we need. Yeah, one of the small Antiochus-aligned states, called the Aetolian League, attacked one of the Roman-friendly states in violation of previous treaties. Hey. Uh... So that's increasing the tension, because now the Aetolian League is sending messages all across Greece in Antiochus's name, oh. saying, hey, let's kick out the Romans and just make Greece free for Greek people again. Antiochus never approved any of this. Mm. But now the Senate is concerned. So they're sending two legions into Greece to try and pacify the situation. Again, pacifying with the military, because that's yeah, you know how you do. Because if you know about Rome, they've only expanded through defensive wars, but they're really aggressive in their defense. Yeah. Listen, they never want violence to happen. They just defend yeah, themselves. Violence happens around them. Yeah, it just, you know, magically. <laughs> <laughs> So now that the Romans have sent their allegiance, Antiochus needs to support his states. He can't just be shown giving up his people. So he has to send an army into Greece. But he only sends an army that's half the size of the Romans one. It's unclear why he does this. It seems that it might be because he expects this to be just a regional war. That they're just going to fight those two tiny city-states in the south of Greece. Once that's dealt with, we can all go home. But it looks like the Romans are planning to just aggressively defend all the way through Greece. So Antiochus crosses into Europe, tries to march through Greece, and call up all of his Greek allies to try and help him out with this conflict. Mm -hmm. He also tries to send messages to the king of Macedon, saying, Hey, the Romans defeated you recently, do you want vengeance? Ah, I see. We're playing both sides now. Yeah. But the Macedonians then see that, oh wait, the Romans have more legions now. We're going to side with the Romans for now. Also, Antiochus <laughs> has to cross the sea to get to us, so they're Roman-aligned. And having seen that Macedon is on their side and an extra Roman legion has crossed into Greece, the remaining neutral states flip to Rome's side. No! Yes. You, you don't know what you're doing. I mean, they do. They do know what they're doing. Just, you yeah. know... <laughs> So Antiochus, seeing all this, decides to place himself in a defensive position. And do you know what is a defensive position in Greece? 
that we've heard of already at some point? Thermopylae. Oh, of course. Yeah, what makes it so defensible? It's just a tight pass between the mountains and the coast that would, you know, it's basically a tight space where the number of the enemy doesn't really matter as much because you can just make a wall of soldiers and they can't cross through. So, you know, even if you have a hundred men versus a thousand, if only a hundred men at a time can fight, it doesn't matter. You're basically evenly matched. All right, well... So, okay, Antiochus places himself in a defensive position at Thermopylae, and the Romans launch a first attack, but they're repelled successfully by the Seleucid forces. But what do we remember from last time somebody defended Thermopylae? That Uh, if you try to defend Thermopylae, you're going to lose. Yeah. Because, and we can only assume this is the most accurate portrayal, one of the Roman officers sees an old, dusted papyrus that says, Dear Xerxes, here's the secret path to get behind the Spartans. Oh. Love the traitor, Ephialtes. Oh, yes. I remember this. And so this Roman officer, called Cato the Elder, ah. of Carthage must be destroyed fame. Yes, yes. And also a horrible person throughout. You should, yeah. He's yeah. just terrible. <laughs> Agreed. He takes a small contingent of his men and manages to capture the nearby mountain pass, and attacks Antiochus's rear, causing a rout that he's forced to retreat and regroup elsewhere. Uh. Now, Antiochus realizes he underestimated the situation. He should have brought more men in the first case. This isn't Mm. just a small regional war. This is all-out war between the empires. So he decides to retreat back to Asia, where he can rebuild his forces and gather the full might of his army against Rome. Good choice. Does he make it there? Yeah. So he manages to get to Asia. That's fine. He manages to cross without too many issues. But then he tries to send a message to the Romans asking for peace. He says, okay, I misunderstood what the situation was. You can keep my aligned city-state that attacked you. I don't actually want a world war. Like, can we please not do this, guys? It's bad for everybody. We don't need to do this. It's fine. It was someone else that violated the treaty. I didn't do it. This happened. But this letter arrives to the Senate just after the election of the new consuls. And the new consuls don't want to be the ones to make peace. They want to win glory and riches by fighting. And they've just been elected. We're not going to end this war right now. And incidentally, the people elected as consul, the little brother of Scipio Africanus, defeater Uh. of Hannibal, (laughs) to lead this campaign. (laughs) Because... Guess who well, wants first of to... all, little brother probably wants to one up, yeah, live yeah. up to his older brother, and also the Senate is probably thinking, well, if his little brother can't make it, Scipio Africanus can definitely do it, and we can just work around the legal issue that he shouldn't be able to lead an army right now because he did it recently yeah. enough. So they refuse the peace. They say we will have no peace we without victory. We want this war, actually. Sorry. Yes. So Antiochus decides to place Hannibal in command of his fleet and to harass the Romans and the Rhodians and the Pergamese to stop them from crossing into Asia while Antiochus prepares his forces. Hannibal manages to keep them away a little bit, but in the end, the Romans slowly, bit by bit, manage to defeat the Seleucid fleet and gain access to the Aegean Sea. Not only that, but Antiochus was forced to evacuate Thrace, his European territories, and Rome occupies them. 
and gets ready for a landing into Asia for the first time in its history. Hmm. Seeing this about to happen, this climactic battle that will decide who gets to own the Mediterranean, Antiochus sends another message to the Romans saying, Hey, listen, you can keep Thrace. I'll recognize your ownership of Greece. You can protect all the Greek cities, both in Greece and Asia. That'll be fine. I'll pay half the war costs, and we don't have to do this. Okay? Okay. I mean, that's, you know... That's a generous terms. Yeah, yeah. Like, not very good for Antiochus, I guess, but, like, we avoid a war. Yeah. But Scipio then replies that... That would have worked a year ago, but now we actually own Thrace, so we don't really need your permission to keep it. If you want peace now, abandon all of Anatolia and go back to Syria. But Antiochus has been fighting all his life to get Anatolia. We've been trying to get this damn place back for two kings in a whole lifetime. It's been a lot. So he refuses. We're getting ready for actual battle. Mm. Also, during the preparation for the battle, we get a fun scene from Gellius, who is a Roman author, where Antiochus is apparently showing his richly decorated army to Hannibal. They're all dressed in silver, they're shining, Mm. they're glorious and all in order. And Antiochus asks Hannibal, So, dear friend, do you think this will be enough for the Romans? And Hannibal replies, Yeah, I think it'll be enough. Even though the Romans are very greedy, that looks like enough silver. (laughs) And I love how in the text, Gellius explains the joke. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, he says, And absolutely nothing could equal this remark for wit and sarcasm. The king had inquired about the size of his army and asked for a comparative <laughs> estimate. Hannibal, in his reply, referred to it as booty. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it is, uh, it's always funnier when you explain the joke. I'm glad yeah, that that has stayed throughout history. also i'm glad that there's the word booty in it (laughs) (laughs) oh god but at last it's time to face off antiochus waits for the roman and pergamene forces on the field of magnesia oh god the official commander is scipio asiaticus the younger brother of scipio africanus but it is strongly implied by certain sources that africanus was the one who was really in charge of this Right. Because his brother wasn't competent at all. Uh, maybe he was, huh? So there's an extremely fierce battle. Antiochus sends his heavy cavalry to damage the Roman legions, but the Romans have defeated the Macedonians before. They know how to deal with the phalanx. Mm. And though his cavalry is strong and manages to punch through, Antiochus's chariots were spooked and retreated into his own army, disrupting oh, no. the phalanx. No! This opened a gap in Antiochus's line, which allowed the Pergamene cavalry to swoop through and cause a full-on rout of Antiochus's forces. I cannot believe this is happening. Antiochus, what? No. The romance of all <laughs> people. so close. I know. God damn it. So he's been defeated. His main army is defeated. The Romans have free reign of Anatolia. No. Antiochus signs an armistice in 189 and says, okay, fine, let's stop fighting. You can definitely keep Anatolia. We'll work out the details later on. So in this piece, Antiochus is forced to abandon Thrace, his lands in Europe, all his lands west of the Taurus Mountains, so all of Anatolia except the bit that's directly attached to Syria. He's forced to pay all the cost of the war, 
greatly reduced the number of his fleet and elephants, hand over hostages, including his youngest son called Mithridates. Oh, oh no. And hand over a number of people that Rome is going to ask for. No. Yeah. Uh. And do you remember who is at Antiochus's court that the Romans might want? Yeah, Hannibal. Yeah. Uh. But the good news is that Antiochus sends a letter to the Romans saying, okay, fine, keep everything. But you'll never believe this. Turns out my council left the door open and Hannibal just escaped, so I can't hand him over. I'm sorry. You'll have to deal with him later. <laughs> yes! I like Antiochus so much. Yes. So Hannibal can get away and live for a while longer, at least. Well, now it is on him to like stay alive, I guess. Yeah, it's his own responsibility. Yep. If Totalis Rankium makes a Senate episode on Hannibal... You'll find out how it ends. But yeah, it's a good story. But anyway, at long last, Anatolia is lost. The Romans divided between the Rhodian and the Pergamene people. And Rome has now hegemony over Anatolia. And there is kind of a funny scene where Livy talks to us about the king of Pergamon going to the Senate and asking for his share of lands. Where apparently when he thought he was the only one there... He basically tells the Senate, oh, no, no, you decide. Oh, you're so wise and powerful. Please let me know what you think I deserve. Mm-hmm. And the Senate says, no, but you tell us what you would need. And it's like, no, I am not worthy. And it's like, oh, yes, but you please tell us. But then when the king of Pergamon finds out that there's an ambassador from Rhodes just outside, he just changes oh. his tone entirely and says, no, 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 I want these lands specifically. Give them all to me. Don't give them to Rhodes. <laughs> I need them, please. Excellent. So that's great. But now we're almost at the end of our story because after the war, there are a series of problematic aftershocks in the Seleucid Empire. Anatolia is gone, and we get two rebellions from satrapies in Armenia, which break off into their own separate kingdoms. And also the Bactrian king, who had signed a treaty to be Antiochus's vassal, is now dead. And his heirs decide not to respect the treaty anymore and is disrupting the region trying to expand. Right. So the east is unstable again. So at this point, Antiochus needs to plan another eastern expedition. This time he'll sign it with his name and Seleucus' name. He'll stabilize everything at least so that this Rome thing, we can all forget about it and find we're happy in Asia. Um, Well, sure. But Antiochus has to pay for a lot of money to the Romans for the war payments. So he doesn't have very much. Yeah. So he needs to try and go and get a lot of money from rich temples that he passes through Hmm. which is never good yeah in particular on the third or fourth of july 187 he found himself in elam where he was looting a temple of bel one of the Hmm. local mesopotamian deities Mm -hmm. and he was only there with his close guard but the locals there were infuriated when they saw somebody raiding their temple thinking it's bandits or who knows Hmm. so they gather their weapons together And they attack Antiochus and his retinue, and all of them are killed. Oh god. So Antiochus the Great dies trying to raid a temple, not with a bang, but with a whimper. The end. Antiochus, no! Uh, (sighs) If he had died like four years earlier, before the war with Rome, it would have been so much better, but it's a tragic ending. I shake my fist at you! We will be yelling Rome Y for the next 
thousand and a half years. Oh god, I'm not ready for this. I'm really not. This is our first encounter with the Romans. And also, it's not the first full Totalis Rankium episode, but there's a Senate episode on Scipio, so... We're there for touching. Uh, just... no. But yeah. Don't get me wrong, Sad I'm used story. to rooting for the Romans, right? But like, come on, guys! Yeah, just Antagus just did so thing. much. He got just so close to doing everything, but no. He had to just, you know, that one dumb city-state in Greece had to attack the Roman friend, and that exploded <sighs> into everything, giving Rome ownership of the Mediterranean, basically. Ugh. And this is basically what inaugurates the period of the late Republic, where Rome acts as the world police for the Mediterranean. Yeah. Where they just go around telling everybody what to do. And it's a fun period. <laughs> we'll we'll police. see what happens, but it's uh, The world it's a police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, uh, uh. So. Antiochus, you were so close. I was rooting for you. <laughs> yeah. Our poor friend. He was so good. <laughs> I mean, he managed to resurrect the empire from death. Yeah, from everything going wrong. I was looking so. at our scores for the Seleucids and it was just like a clear downward trend for each king rating lower than the previous one. Yeah. And Antiochus fixed it, but eh. so we'll have to see what Seleucus IV does in the next episode. If the damn Romans. I don't even know. Like, I'm like, no, I, I feel like it's gonna take me so long to get over this. I don't even care about the next episode. Yeah. I'm just... <laughs> It's disappointing. And this is one of the people that I didn't know about because nobody ever talks about the period of the Roman Republic after the Punic Wars and before the big civil wars. That's always just like, and Rome conquered the Mediterranean because reasons. But I, yeah, and the story of Antiochus III was fully new to me, but it's really fun. And yeah. Also, Antiochus III, new favorite. I love him. He's so devious. He did so so well. And like, come on. (laughs) Yeah. Poor boy. Take all this with a grain of salt, of course. I'm not actually a fan of any monarchs, but, you know. Yeah, but still, within the context, within the story context, it's fun. In my own headcanon, he's fun. Yeah. Okay, so are you ready to rate him, Serial? Yes, I am. Let's go. So our first category is final moments. How interesting was his death? To die in a temple massacred by the local population after trying to raid it. Terrible. I think it's so disappointing it's good. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Bad. Because it was just just so close and then it just died in this dumb, anticlimactic way. I cannot believe. It's such a downfall. He deserved better. Yeah, how the mighty have fallen. So, yeah. I'm impressed. I definitely think it's memorable, at least. That's something fits. Mm. I'm not sure how memorable to put it. I'm somewhere between a five and a seven, and I'm debating with myself where to go. Because I gave Salukas mm, the I first a seven. Because it's just, I'm not over the disappointment. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because <laughs> Salukas the second got a five falling off a horse. <laughs> but that was I, funny! <laughs> I think this is in a similar category. It's like an anti-climax where it's like, you're about to head off to a great expedition, but nope, you just died in a dumb way. Yeah, I think f- five works for me. Are you sticking with five as well? Yeah, I am. I am sick. Listen, it's not even like badly timed. Like, Sir Lucas's death was badly timed and it was silly and I could not believe what was going on. But with this is just sad. <laughs> this is just sad. Yeah, it's depressing. 
But hey. Yeah. So with a five and a five, he gets a five out of ten for final moments. Next category is battle hardness. How good was he at combat and war? So let's go through his entire resume. He started his reign. Molon rebelled. Hermia sent a couple of armies, but they lost. Then when Antiochus himself went, he managed to defeat Molon, retake Mesopotamia in the east. Then he fought against Ptolemy IV. It was sort of a half victory where he retook some of Syria, but not Palestine. Mm -hmm. So that went kind of okay. Not great, not terrible. Bit of a missed opportunity. Then he fought Achaeus. He won. He managed to reconquer Anatolia. Then afterwards, he managed to conquer the kingdom of Armenia. And then he had his whole eastern anabasis that made him called the Great. He defeated the Parthians, made them his vassals. He defeated the Bactrians, made them his vassals. He went through India, made them his vassals. He reconsolidated all the territory of Iran. Very good. Just awesome. Which is very nice. Then he marched back against Egypt in the Fifth Syrian War against Ptolemy V, took all of Palestine, permanently broke the back of the Ptolemies, yep. took a ton of little cities in Anatolia, retaking that territory from the Ptolemies. Then he became the first king to get into Europe. He conquered parts of Thrace, where he founded a city there. And then we get to the Roman bit. <laughs> Uh. where he declared war against Rome. He tried to defend Thermopylae, but was outflanked. He tried to go back to Asia. He had to abandon Thrace. Hannibal tried to hold on to the Aegean Sea, but eventually lost it. The Romans crossed into Anatolia, defeated him at the Battle of Magnesia, and forced him to lose his territories. So it's definitely a mixed bag. Again, if he had he died before the war with Rome, incredible, yeah. amazing. But he didn't. Yeah, and therefore so, it is kind of on him. Yeah, so what do you think? I can't believe this happened. I cannot believe this I happened. know. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. Here I'm like an eight or a nine. Because nine, my argument is that Darius the Great basically won everything but lost against Marathon and didn't do a great job against the Scythians. Hmm. So that would be an argument for nine. But I also I wanted feel to give that... him a ten, but then Rome know, came along. I know. What the hell? Damn Romans. Romans go home. <sighs> Romani domu I can't remember. Uh Romanes Domum. Romani ite domum. No, Romanes Domum ite fine. That I don't thing. know Latin. <laughs> you know you the reference. Anyway, that thing. Romani domum ita is the correct one. That's the thing. Romanes eunt domus is the Brian. Good. Done. Is the Brian. I see. This yes, makes sense. Yes, the Brian. Is yes. this staying no. in the podcast? I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'll think about it. But yeah, so battle hardness. I think I want to give him a nine, but I'll have to give him an eight. Because it's such a big defeat, it just loses all of Anatolia. If it were just a minor defeat and he had to abandon Thrace, then yes, nine. But he loses all of Anatolia. Yeah, I think I can't go higher than Nate. I love the man, but not more than this. How about you, Serio? Now I'm giving him a nine. He deserves Feel it. Feel free to. My yeah. boy. <laughs> Damn I'm going to go cry about it. I'll be back later. <laughs> okay, so with an eight and a nine, he gets a 17 out of 20 for battle hardness, second only to Seleucus I among his dynasty, because come on. Yeah. 
Next category is scheminess. How good we see at plots yes. and subterfuge. Yes! Finally! She gets points here. There's stuff here. Darius would be proud. <laughs> I love this. It's so unnecessary and so good. Yeah, it's good stuff. So going back to the beginning. Well, first of all, he manages to pin the blame for the brutality on Hermias to start from. Then he yeah. pretends he is sick to lure Hermias into his tent and have him executed. Yes. So that's nice. Then he bribes the guy to get Achaeus out of the city and into his hands. Yep. And they're again, oh no, the mean council got to him first. Whatever Whoopsie. will we do? So that was an element. Then he has conquest, conquest, conquest in the east, gets back, does some stuff. Then when he gets to, it's debatable if you want to call it scheminess, but when he interacts with Rome, he sort of tries and has these different backroom deals with the different Greek city-states to try and bring him to his side. That might be more political than schemey, but you judge for yourself. Yeah, that was just smart, but... Yeah. And then when Hannibal comes to visit him and he's meant to give up Hannibal, he just says, oh no, looks like he got oh, away. Nothing I can do. Sorry, Romans. Oh, I, f I forgot I gave him my keys. Oh, shucks. <laughs> Sorry, guys. So that. And yeah, I think that's the main points of his scheminess. I don't know if there's anything that particularly stuck in your mind that I didn't mention, but... Uh, I don't think so. I like these so much. That's fun. It, and it's also fun scheminess, because it's just yeah. like, oh, you rascal. You rascal, you. Yeah. <laughs> but I, well, you know, with a side of torture. You rascal, but, you, with uh, your horrifying mutilations. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm impressed with the scheme it's not the highest ever definitely not darius levels but i'm mm, saying I'd go with an eight my brain is an eight. Ooh, an eight. look at you so an eight is as much as i feel like we gave darius did a you 10, give an eight right to? yeah we gave darius a 10 you gave a nine to alex the great and I mean, no one else so deranged close in yeah. scheminess what did well, he Alex murdered do? his father, he blamed on his mother, blah, blah, blah. Oh, oh, kill, yeah. Kill, 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 stab, stab, stab. <laughs> I'm a god. Forgetting. That sort of thing. I keep forgetting. Yeah, Alex. Alex did a lot. Ah. <laughs> Good times. Ah. So you're thinking an eight. I'm feeling lower. I think six or seven, six or seven. Um, you know what? Let's go Am for I... a seven, because I, I just like the council yes. blaming. It's good stuff. Yes, it is good stuff glad we agree okay so if you're sticking with an eight let's have a seven and an eight make a 15 out of 20 for scheminess which is a very nice score next category is shock factor how shocking and terrifying was this man uh, uh very quite a few things <laughs> so you know murdering all his regions everybody in his place Sorry, allowing... what are you talking about? He is incredibly merciful and a nice guy. <laughs> of course, of course. It's just not his fault that his, this console kept going on their own way. <laughs> yeah, he did nothing cool. wrong in his entire life. He is perfect. He's a pure golden boy and he's the best. Clearly. So, yeah. So, killing his former regents or would-be regents. Horribly mutilating Achaeus for the crime of rebellion. Hmm. What did he do? He, well, he managed to retake all of the East, which is kind of shocking. <laughs> Unexpected for where we started. 
I guess that that is one way. Like, if you want to keep it that way. To put it, yeah. Then he had his son marry his daughter, which is kind of icky. But we've seen the Ptolemies do that. Yeah, but it's the first time this dynasty is doing it, so... That's fair. Eh, yeah. A bit weird. And also, I didn't mention it, but his daughter Laodike, after the death yeah. of Prince Antiochus, was given yeah. a marriage to Seleucus IV, our future king. Her second brother that she married. Which is uh, also... Ah, uh, 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 we're yeah. keeping it in the family, I yeah. see. <laughs> we're keeping it very in the family. Uh, uh-huh. 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 So that's shocking, and then he... <laughs> I don't know if you want to put it in shocking that he is having a hypocrisy battle with the Romans on who is more imperialist. I feel like that's just what politicians do. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Like, this is not new. Yeah. Also, another thing that could be shocking is he doesn't listen to Hannibal's advice on attacking Rome directly when he had him there. He thinks he is better than him and will Yeah, that is pride. Win. And honestly, he should have listened to Hannibal. Like, Hannibal was there, right? Like, yeah, he, he was had in his a court. Plan. No, and I mean, like, Hannibal was in Rome. Like, he got to see, like, probably what the weaknesses were. What the, like, yeah, he and knows how they fight. He mistakes. beat them in many battles. Yeah. But he did lose against Scipio That's and Zama, the thing. So. They're like, oh, Woods, Hannibal lost. It's like, we lost the last one. You know? Like, yeah. he, he won all the way through. He had a good yeah. plan. My boy deserves justice. <laughs> yeah, but that's also sort of the tortoise and the hare story where you win everything, then you fall asleep halfway through and the tortoise yeah, just makes it to I the know. end of perseverance. Well, he did not fall asleep. It wasn't his fault that they didn't back him up. Well. Come on. Can't wait to see the comments on this. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it's like the space race. It's the same. Like, it feels unfair. I understand it why it feels unfair, happened, but the person but who wins unfair. the race is the one who crosses the finish line. Oh so, just, eh, I am sorry. a fan of rewards by achievement. No, oh, that definitely. I think Hannibal deserved to win, but well, we're not speaking Carthaginian right now, are we? We're also not speaking Latin, my friend. I mean, English is sort of Latin derived. It has bits in it. I know. Listen, I am from Spain. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> We're a Spaniard and an Italian. I guess we know. <laughs> yeah, we know how it finishes. Okay, but shock factor, what is your thought? The scheming, the murders, the deflecting, the hypocrisy, and the not listening to Hannibal, the marrying his children to each other. How does that rate to you? A bit shocking, I guess. Not the most shocking, not Alexander <laughs> levels of shocking, but... No, of course not, but... That's hard to reach. But who has, yeah, who has Alexander levels of shocking, honestly? Yeah, I'd say, let me what give the points give, out bit by me? bit. I'm, I'm going to say two points for the sibling marriage because he does it twice. And ew. Yeah. I'd say two more points for the deflecting on the council because he does it twice. So fair enough. Yeah. One point for the not listening to Hannibal. Is there anything more I want to give him? I think five is fair, honestly. Five is what we gave Antiochus the first. For, you know, the whole marrying the stepmother, oh, yeah. killing his son Seleucus, that sort of thing. We also gave it to Xerxes yeah. the first. And those are only other fives, really. Uh, yeah, I think five works fair. for shock factor. Yeah. You matching? Yeah. Okay, so with a five and a five, we get a 10 out of 20 for shock factor, which is tied first for Seleucid shocker. Would you say he's more shocking than 
the other two people we gave a five to. Would you say he's more shocking? Ah, I don't think so. I think he's like a healthy amount of shock. I don't know. I could. Hmm. You're making me doubt now. Or less shocking, you know. Who like, did we give a six? No, Let me see. I gave a six to Astyages for the whole oh, nephew yeah. murder attempt. Grandson murder nephew yeah. attempt. We don't have any other sixes, honestly, so we're kind of in the open here. Now that you've told me I'm going to go for a six, yes, I think is is a little bit more <laughs> shocking than the others. So are you also matching a six or staying yes, with a five? I, um, I thought, you know, it felt a bit like he deserves an extra point. Yeah, yeah. It's been a shocking episode. If anything, for the vibes. Good vibes going on. So with a 6 and a 6, he gets a 12 out of 20 for shock factor, being the most shocking Seleucid. Yeah, that checks out. Next category is Eren Shine. How good was he for the Empire overall and Iran in particular? Uh, I wanted to give him a 10. <laughs> I know. He <laughs> <laughs> was so close to being up there, but no. Uh, I'm suffering. Can we just pretend Rom never came <laughs> along? You know, can we pretend that it's just up until the last four years and then he just, you know, wasn't there? Yeah, afraid mm. not. That's not how this works. Oh, but... Even Darius III did a good job until Alexander came over. But we can't do this. But... So let's start with where the Empire was. Basically, Antiochus has had the Empire at its lowest point when it was reduced to just Syria during Molon's Rebellion. And he also had it at its highest point when it took India, all of the East, Palestine, Anatolia, and Thrace. This is the maximum expansion of the empire. It will never get bigger. So, See, good job. That's amazing. Can we I know. Do, do, watch me be like, look at this. Points at a map of the expansion of the empire. Isn't it awesome? Never mind. That's, we're not looking at this other map right now. Just the, the cool one. <laughs> Shush, don't look at the bad map. Stop. And also, just so we're saying more good parts, he also reorganized the empire to ensure that it was closer under the control of the king. He reorganized the old satrapies into a closer governorship system, which would reduce rebellions and ensure more reactivity from local government. He reconquered the East. He ensured that everybody was in order. He also included more of the local population to their own government. Yeah. The high aristocracy remains Macedonian, but at least local government is more localized now. Mm -hmm. He managed to break the back of the Ptolemaic kingdom. They're never going to be an existential threat again. <laughs> Remembering Ptolemy III, who just a generation ago destroyed everything and almost yep. collapsed yep. the empire. Now the Ptolemies are not a threat anymore. They've stopped being one. They're just going That's... to be someone else's plaything. Oh, we're so powerful! Yes, also he has made himself finally great king, no longer just a normal king. He is now the great king. The king of kings! Great. Yes, he is the king of kings. He is king over other kings. He has stabilized the east. The problems come in the west where, yes, he took back Anatolia. Yes, he took Thrace, but he was forced to surrender them. <sighs> okay, he was forced so to pay huge amounts to Rome and surrender his own son, Mithridates, to the Romans as a hostage. That is terrible. Think how I'm fun assuming... the succession will be when that comes into play. Yeah, I, I'm assuming Mithridates is going to die. We'll see. But the successor is Seleucus, yeah? Yeah, Seleucus is a successor, but yeah. he has another son that's a hostage. I know, I know, I know. 
<laughs> so after all is said and done and all these terrible things kind of happened or didn't or maybe did, uh, you know. Sure. <laughs> how is the Empire looking compared to the beginning the of his reign? The Empire is definitely better compared to the beginning. In the beginning, he okay, was the okay. last Seleucid controlled yeah, no, the by a bunch was, of people. Everything was in flames. Everything was on fire. Now the Empire is solid. He has an heir that is an adult that can just take the reins of control. They have Palestine, which they've never had before. The East is stable. Mesopotamia is stable. Syria is stable. The Empire is in a good place. It could have been in a better place. But, you know, if he had never taken Anatolia, this would just be very impressive. So the Empire is doing well. It's healthy. It's risen again. The Empire was basically falling and now it's back up to, I don't know if you'd call it a golden age, but it's definitely doing extremely well. All right. So... So, so good. So very exactly good. Exactly not a 10, but good. Yeah, I'm between an 8 and a 9. I will go for a 9 because I... So he's going to beat Seleucus the first. To. Because okay, I want okay. to, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yes, go for it. So a 9, I'm going to keep us closer to Earth and say an 8 because also, yes, there is more local population in government, but it's not like fully integrated and yeah. I'm going to consider that enough to just bump him down to an eight. That is fair. So with an eight and a nine, he gets a 17 out of 20 for Aaron Shine being the best Seleucid and the fifth best ranked of all our kings that we've had so far, which pretty impressive. Next category is face of faces. What do you think this man who flew so close to the sun but plummeted down to the earth looked like? I'm going to need a minute. You can have it. Today is not because I don't know what to draw, but because there's too many things. So I'm going to emotions. God. So, yeah. This was a good episode. I have a whole book that's just yeah. the Seleucid Empire of Antiochus III. That's so cool, because you said it's not even, like, very talked about. And I'm like, dude, what the f- No, because this is the period in Roman history. Well, because this is when Rome, like, starts to be relevant, I guess. So they're like, yeah, but everybody says shift the focus. Yeah, they, they defeat Hannibal, Carthage is defeated, then blah, 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 Julius Caesar. And it's like, wait, but those yeah, are 150 yeah. years of stuff <laughs> happening. Actually, you can keep that in the podcast if yeah. you want. <laughs> can we have a t-shirt that is... T- <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do that. Feel free to design a t-shirt. We'll Punic Wars, they defeat Hannibal, blah, 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 Julius Caesar. And then just in the blah, 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 it's like, us. Ah, <laughs> uh, please. Just Antiochus looking at it being like, am I a joke to you? <laughs> I did cool things. Okay, so Serial has finished their drawing, and they're going to send it to me so we can see what they think of our good boy Antiochus. I have many thoughts. <laughs> okay, let me open it up. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's very good, so I very much appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. So, as we can see, there is... Our beautiful boy Antiochus the Great, he has nice wavy hair with the diadem on it. He is in armor, he has a nice cloak held together with a big old Seleucid brooch. And half of his face is in darkness with a glint in his eye. And the other half has a slightly concerning look, I would call it. And in the meantime, he has a sword in his hand, he's cleaning some blood off from the other, or it might be jam, who knows. 
<laughs> and next to it, it says, Oh, pity. It looks like my counsel got to him first. Because <laughs> he would never. He would no, never. No, he wouldn't. No, 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 no. He's too generous and kind and good for this. So, very good. Thank you very much, Serial. Listeners, check it out on the website. It's worth it. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay, so in the meantime, let me show Serial what he actually looks like. Because, surprise, surprise, we do not have a coin this time. Or rather, oh. we have coins, but we have a full-on bust that you can look <gasps> at. Yes! Gaze into his oh eyes my goodness. and describe him. Oh, look at him! It's the boy! <laughs> well, the man, you know. Yeah. Because he must be older than four in this portrait. But, yeah, or that's, like. that's what he looks like, I don't know. Yeah, I love this, actually. Yeah, it's, it's in the so... Louvre if you want to go see it. If you want to go visit him, go good, to Paris. Good bust. Not super stylized, because, like, I really like the action lines of... Action lines is not the correct term, but, like, <laughs> just the flow that the face has with mm -hmm. counterpointed diagonals to it. Like, the eyebrow line goes in a different direction than, like, the mouth and the chin. And, like, it's just... It's good... Short hair, like barely any bangs or any fringe, slightly wavy with the diadem on top. Mm -hmm. Impressive cheekbones, uh, somewhat thin face. Yeah, I just, it's difficult to describe a face, but I like it. Yeah. Somewhat thin nice. lips, long nose, pretty straight, and somewhat sunken eyes with like the eyebrow bone casting a bit of a shadow on them. and. Yeah, it's a very piercing gaze, I'd say. Yeah, I like this so much. It's so... I... Yeah, it, it again, <laughs> feels like a person as much as a bust in marble can feel like a person, right? But it has a very particular expression. It's just like I, I can see him thinking, you know? Yeah, like yeah, you can the see that this, this is The worst part is he looks like a good guy. guy. He looks like a... He looks like a reasonable, you know? And I'm like, that's... Mm, that's what he keeps tell telling everyone. Everybody just keeps saying <laughs> that he's lying, but no. Yeah, really cool. Oh, he's missing part of an ear. A chunk of it. Yeah, it looks been, like it broke um, off in the yeah. time. But yeah. So, what do you think? Very cool. Is this contemporary to the time? I think it is. Let me actually double check. It's probably a Roman copy of a Greek original, presumably. Based on what I can read, it looks like it's a replica of an original from the 3rd century BC. So, that seems to be the case. So, it should be basically in line with his life. Cool. So, it is contemporaneous. and Contemporaneous? Is contemporaneous a word? a word? I don't know. Is it? It might be. If it isn't, I know what it means. <laughs> I really like it. I want to give it a 10. but A full-on 10. Maybe I'll give it uh, a nine, you... just because the Greeks um... made it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. But, yeah, so you only give a ten to Alex and Seleucus the first. You give a nine to Antiochus the first with his uh, chronology portrait, and Xerxes yeah. the first, and Darius the Great. And then eights are a bit further on. Like I'm Darius gonna go the with a ten, well. because that's what my gut told me, and this is, you know... Not actually I like him relevant. too very much. I, I think it's great because you see him as a person 
I feel like it matches his personality. I think it looks like what you would think. And like, he think looks it, like a good guy, and he most certainly wasn't. <laughs> I think he looks like a smart guy who was very capable. Yes. I think that's what I'm getting out of that's it. That's fair. So I think a 10 is very good. So a 10 and a 10. Damn. Let's we go. We get a 5 out of 5 for Face of Faces. Which leads us to our final category, that is lengthiness. How long do you think this man reigned? A long while, I guess. He started when he was like 18. Yeah, literally. And then finally took the reins of his empire and then all the things happened. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say... I think this is not enough, but I'm going to say 30 years. 30 years. Well, you're right that it's not enough. It's 36 yeah. years. Our longest rule since Artaxerxes II. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say 40, but I was like, that feels... That might be too much. Okay. Yeah. So he rules from 223 to 187, a nice, long, very eventful 36 years. Which leads us to the final score. And it is a very, very impressive score, Serial. It is 74.6 out of 100 points, which makes him our second scored king, surpassing Alexander the Great and just... Five points behind Darius the Great. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic when you're saying, like, it's a very impressive score and then, like, 24 out of 100. <laughs> no, this one's actually impressive. This is, like, the second highest score. He is very good. Yeah. It's a very eventful life. It's an interesting story. I think it's definitely worth it. Which leads us to the final question where I have my answer. I, I think you have yours too. But is he brilliant enough? Tragic enough? Great enough to be called a Shahanshah, or is he just a Shahanna? He was literally a Shahanshah. Yes, of course he gets my vote. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, I think you would be hard-pressed to argue against this. I mean, this was a really interesting story, really good. So I think without arguing too much, we can say that Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, you can go off to the Paradise Garden, meet your ancestor Seleucus, and tell him that you did your best to restore everything, and you even surpassed him in certain parts. Yeah. Take that. And now it's time to see what happens to everyone that's left And then behind. Rome came along. But we don't talk yeah. about and that. And then along came Rome. Da -da. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the end of this very long episode on Antiochus the Great. We'll see next time what happens to Seleucus IV and what's left behind, the Empire, and... In the meantime, while you wait, why not rate us and review us on your podcast app of choice so more people know that we exist and more people know that Antiochus III exists because he deserves it. Come on. The man deserves to be more known. So do your part. <laughs> do your part. And yeah, so I'd say without further ado, we hope you have a nice week and we'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Mm -hmm. Goodbye.